We have certainly enjoyed the opportunity to worship the Lord together today, and I hope that that is the prayer of our hearts, that we love to tell of what God has done in our lives. And if you are here and you say, well, God's never done anything in my life, my friend, you need, you need to hear what Jesus has done for you. He's done a lot. And we've seen that in our study of the book of John. So I invite you today to turn in your Bible to John chapter 11. We began this passage or this chapter last week um, as we continue on through the study of John. And we've seen this theme time and again of life in Jesus, the Son of God. And, and last week, uh, we looked at the preeminence of God's glory and everything that he does in this world. I mean, the, the, the all-consuming passion of God is that he would be glorified as is appropriate and right, for he is God. And when you get to John chapter 11, you get to a passage of Scripture that many know the story, they know the account that took place there about this man named Lazarus who died. And again, I, I'm going to tell you the end of the story. If you don't know already, Jesus is going to raise him back to life here in the next little bit as we look, not today, but in, in the coming weeks we look at this passage. But, but everything we see here leading up to that uh, points us back to this message of, of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so last week we looked at, at how Jesus heard of these things, though he knew them as God already, and, and he shared with those, uh, his disciples and those who were there, that, that these things would be done in a way that would bring honor and glory to God. And we looked at that no matter what we're going on, what's going on in our lives, no matter what, what God has brought into our, our lives, no matter what we experience, these things uh, are, are given uh, into our lives or we experience these things that we can use them to the glory of God with his help. And even in a hard situation like Mary, Mary and Martha's family faced with the loss of their brother Lazarus, these things were done so that God would receive the honor and the glory. And so today, as we look at the end of last time, Jesus and his disciples were leaving the area of Bethany beyond the Jordan to go to the city of Bethany, which is about a day away, to where Lazarus' family was. And so today in this passage, we're going to see that Jesus is the resurrection and the life in John 11, verses 17 through 37. In order to get the context of that, I invite you to follow along as we read this passage together. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God, who has come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. 
Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were, who were in, with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also kept this man from dying? Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to worship you together today. We thank you for the reminders and song that we have sung that the greatest theme that we can ever know is Jesus. The greatest glory we can ever offer is glory to God. And we ask today as we open this passage of scripture over the next few minutes and we, we, we study it, we seek to apply it to our hearts and lives, that you will meet with us here, that your Holy Spirit would open your word to us today, that you would show us who you are, who Jesus Christ is and what he's done, that he is the resurrection and the life, that he is our hope, he is everything. Lord, for one today who hears this message, who has never truly placed faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, convict them of their sin today. Draw them to yourself. Lord, to those who have, help us today to once again see Jesus afresh and anew, Encourage us, strengthen us to live for your kingdom. Convict us of our sin. Help us to be willing to repent of it. And with your help and your strength to live to your honor and your glory. May everything that's said and done here bring honor to you, glory to you. May nothing distract from what you would have to do in our hearts today. In your name we pray. Amen. Sooner and later in life, someone is going to make what they call a life-changing promise to you. And soon after you hear a life-changing promise, you'll realize that such a promise is only as good as the power that person wields or the character of that person who gave you that promise. The salesman on the infomercial promising to change your life with whatever item he is peddling this week isn't going to be answering the phone when that item breaks two weeks later. The politician who promises you no new taxes suddenly has a mountain of good reasons why he can't keep that campaign promise two years into a four-year term. The husband or wife who stood before God and promised till death do us part suddenly chalks the entire marriage up to young love or the biggest mistake I ever made while they file a divorce. Life-changing promises don't do us much good if the life, ability, and character of the one making the promise is ever-changing. But with Jesus, it's much, much different. He is God. And as God, he makes promises that no one else can make. And, And here in this passage today, in John chapter 11, verses 17 through 37... Jesus reveals more of who he is, and in that revelation, we find a life-changing promise that's backed up by the eternal power of God. What you see here is because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, my hope for eternity and spiritual life in the present are tied directly to him. 
Jesus says here in this passage that we read a few minutes ago, he, he claims this title. That's the, the title of this message is no more than the resurrection and life because that's who Jesus says he is. And because he is that, because he is God and has the ability to say that and give resurrection and life to those who believe in him, the hope that you and I can have for eternal life is wrapped up in him. And the hope that you and I can have to live a life on this earth that pleases him and is found in the strength of him is wrapped up in Jesus. And so once again, John points us back to this. How you respond to Jesus has everything to do with who and what you are. That's what defines us. It defines our eternity. It defines our temporal lives. And so we look here today as, as, as this passage is, of course, leading up to what we'll look at next time when, when Lazarus is raised from the dead. But everything is, is le- that's leading to that point is continuing to build on this theme of John that, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that you may have life in his name. And so today, let's look at this next statement that Jesus makes of who he is and the power that he has as God. In verses 17 through 19, we pick up some notes here as we, as we uh, move along the story forward. As we move the story forward, we see Jesus' arrival here in the area. And what we learn in, in verse 17 is we learn about Lazarus' state. It says, so when Jesus came, he found that he, that, that's Lazarus, had been, already been in the tomb four days. So Jesus and his disciples have now made that one-day trip from Bethany beyond the Jordan to the city of Bethany. If you'll recall from last, last time, uh, they had a, a messenger that, that went from the time that Lazarus was sick, made that journey to see Jesus. And I told you last time that it's very likely that during that trip, or even as the, he left and didn't realize it, Lazarus had already died. Then Jesus delayed two days, and now they've made that trip to Bethany to where Lazarus has been buried. And upon arriving, the facts of, this, of the situation are ascertained. And Jesus, as God, we saw in the last passage last time, he already knows that Lazarus is dead. He's very clear about that with his disciples. But at the same time, Jesus' humanity is also pictured here in that he listened to information that was shared by others as well. He doesn't walk in and say, yeah, I already know, right? He says here, talks about that people told him of these things, that that Lazarus had been buried and, and in the tomb for four days. And in the climate in which this account takes place there in Israel, the dead were buried actually rather quickly because the Jews did not practice embalming and the warm conditions would lead to rapid decay of the bodies. So therefore, it was actually quite common when one died, he was buried on the same day. Here, I think we should also note that the length of time of Lazarus' death to Jesus' arrival also serves perhaps another purpose. As you study the later Jewish writings, these writings come from about the 3rd century A.D., so, so it's some time removed from when Jesus was on earth. You, you read of a belief that emerged over time in the Jewish culture, and that was that the soul of a deceased person hovered over the body for the three days, hoping to reenter that body. And on the fourth day, when decomposition set in, it didn't recognize the body anymore, it would go on to its eternal state. Now, let me be very clear. There is no biblical basis for that at all, okay? This is a, what we would amount to a, a superstition, right, or a personal belief. And those writings, I told you, they come from the 3rd century A.D. We're not even entirely sure that that was believed at the time of Jesus, but... It may have been, and that's what makes it relevant to this passage. And so there may have been this element of four days to, to even help us understand here that, that Jesus 
uh, his delay, there's an importance there of his delay uh, to the fourth day. It proves that Jesus is Lord even above man's traditions and superstitions, by the way, okay, which hold no water anyway. And having arrived and observed Lazarus' estate, we see also how the family is faring. We see in verses 18 and 19. Now we, know we, see, we saw Lazarus' estate in verse 17. Now we see the family's situation in verses 18 and 19. It says, Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brethren. So as we've mentioned in passages before, Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem. Really, the distance is more around one and three quarters miles. But that makes this translation, right, because you're holding an English translation of the Greek text, about two miles. It's a very fair translation of that text. And we see that then the seemingly personal risk that Jesus is taking here. Because it would not be an understatement to say Jesus is not very popular in these parts during this time. If you remember the end of chapter 10, Jesus is quite unpopular in the areas surrounding Jerusalem. But we also know from what we looked at last week that the confidence Jesus has in in doing this work because God's time for Jesus' work is still active. And and so we learn here that, that Mary and Martha have been joined by many of the Jews, it says. Now, presumably, there are many people who have come from the city of Jerusalem to be with Mary and Martha. And while some of them are probably from the religious hierarchy that, that John typically uses that word Jews to refer to, it also seems that this term he's using here doesn't mean that every single one of those people was part of this religious hierarchy group. It also seems, as we look at this passage and the passages to come, that actually Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' family was, was quite prominent given the amount of people who came. And what they had come to do is they had come to comfort these two sisters during their time of mourning. So from a human perspective, what they're doing is they're fulfilling their duty to their friends that they love so dearly. They're coming in to to comfort them during a time of mourning and great loss and suffering. They had come to fill that need that they needed to fill. But I want you to see that there is also a divine perspective. There is God's perspective on this as well. Because in God's perfect plan, all of these people have gathered, why? To witness what we could probably call the greatest miracle, if not, you know, one of, if not the greatest miracles in Jesus' ministry. They're going to witness Jesus resurrect Lazarus from the dead. God sets the terms and he sets the audience of all of his works. Nothing happens by accident. And here, he has set in motion a large group to see these things take place. There's going to be no denying what happens in the the verses to come. And as Jesus enters the area, we see the first of two personal meetings that he has. In the first one, we see Jesus' revelation as he meets with Martha. Look in verses 20 through 24 and see Martha's grief here. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. 
the custom for Jewish mourning was for those who had suffered loss in their family, that they would remain seated in their home or other places, and others would gather around them to console them during this time. However, Martha, we see, is not content to remain in the home, and she is ever active. And in fact, if you're familiar with the passage in Luke chapter 10 about Martha and Mary, that's, that's quite, uh, it resonates with her character that we see in Luke chapter 10. And here, she learns that Jesus has arrived in the area, and that springs her into action. And Mary, the contemplative one, remains seated in the home during this time. And as Martha makes it to Jesus, and you read what she says, you can feel the grief and the faith all mixed into one statement. She firmly believes that if Jesus had been there, Lazarus would not have died. And if you saw and understood what Jesus did when he was here on this earth, and you believed in who he was, you'd believe that too, right? That if he had been here, he would have healed Lazarus, and Lazarus would not have passed away. Instead, he would have been healed. And I think it's very easy to read into the statement some tone of rebuke or accusation or bitterness, right? Because a statement like that, look, if you had been here, you know, he wouldn't have died. But I really don't think that's what's going on here from everything else that you see that that she says in this passage. I think what you see instead here is, is grief that's mixed with incredible faith. For even though Martha thinks and she expresses a great if only statement, and you and I have pretty much in our probably in our lives, maybe even this past week, had a lot of if only statements that we've said or thought. She still at the same time continues to believe. In his power and might, she had confidence that whatever Jesus asked of the Father, it would be done. Now, why is that? Because Jesus and the Father are one, as Jesus has made very clear. Now, I don't agree with some of the commentators who believe that here's Martha trying to twist Jesus' arm into doing something. I believe, again, this is just an expression of her faith in Jesus in the midst of her suffering and her grief. Martha believed this. Though it may not necessarily mean she believed that Jesus would resurrect her brother. Actually, there are words of protest that Martha gives later when Jesus is preparing to resurrect Lazarus. That seem to indicate she had hesitations about Jesus' ability to immediately resurrect Lazarus from the dead. And here in Martha, you and I find a lady who is not only relatable, she's just like us today. She was a human being who struggle with the very real feelings and real raw emotions that we wrestle with on a daily basis. She is deeply emotional. She is overcome in her inner being with grief and the loss of her brother. And and we who have lost in our own lives close family members, we feel that grief in our own souls. We all who have experienced this know the crushing weight that can close in on our lives. So look around this room today, I see probably most, if not all of us, who have been touched by death at some point in our lives. And it does. That weight crushes in on your soul sometimes. It hurts. It's deep. At the same time, as Martha is experiencing this, she is also a disciple of Jesus. And so while she is wrestling with these emotions and these feelings, she is also filled with devotion for her Lord. She is almost, what we could say, in a straight betwixt two. She is torn by grief and hope at the same time. Christian, do you ever feel this way? Do you ever feel that you are caught in the middle of what you know to be true and what you feel in the moment? That can be a hard thing in our lives. We feel all of this, but we know this, right? 
Do you ever in your heart feel the undeniable gnawing of doubt, fear, anxiety, brokenness, hopelessness, and darkness? While at the same time, you know the hope, assurance, peace, rest, expectation, and stirring of faith in Jesus Christ. And if so, you are not alone. In fact, while on this earth, things will happen that will cause us to wrestle with these things. Lazarus' death is a byproduct of sin that has entered the world. And it's therefore, these are the sorts of things we experience in a fallen world. We will suffer the loss of loved ones. We will suffer the despair of trials, the hardships of life, and more. And these things will tempt us to doubt and waver in our faith. And we will feel in those moments a great resonation with the words of the psalmist where he writes in Psalm 42, verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Jesus knows Martha's struggle. And he knows yours. And into Martha's life, he speaks his comfort. He tells her here in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Now Jesus had already promised at the beginning of of John chapter 11 and verse 4, that this sickness was not going to end in death. He had already told his disciples, he had told the messenger who had come, he had told everybody that, that this is what was going to happen. And yet, here, it seems like death has won because Lazarus has been dead, he's been buried for four days. However, Jesus knows the end of the story. And he seeks to share that here with Martha Martha, in grief and yet still in faith, she misses here the immediacy of Jesus' words. She, she knows that Lazarus will rise again on the last day. She says that, I, I know, in verse 24, that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You understand that this idea of resurrection in God is not a New Testament idea. This is not something that Jesus made up. This is not something the church talks about. This is something that comes from even the Old Testament scriptures because God is the same God, right? In Job 19, verses 25 through 27, we read, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at the last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job, who went through some of the greatest trials of anyone we could ever look at in the scriptures, looked ahead towards the hope that he had in God of the resurrection. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, wrote, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, in Jesus' day, there had, there had come a, a division over scriptures such as this. You had the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection, and then you had the Pharisees who, who did believe in the resurrection, and they affirmed these scriptures. Martha herself believed in the resurrection one day, and though she may not have seen the immediate work Jesus was going to do, she once again should also be commended for her faith in the word of God. Her faith was not necessarily in words that some religious leader had said, but she understood that there would be a a resurrection because that is what God had said. And what Jesus is going to do is he's not going to leave her 
in that state of belief, he's going to again call her to greater trust and belief in himself. In his love for her, he makes yet another incredible revelation and promise regarding himself. And in verses 25 and 26, we see from Jesus' revelation, we see Jesus' claim that he makes here. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So in the Gospel of John, you have seven of these I am statements that Jesus makes. And this is number five here. Jesus takes the truth that's found in the word of God and personalizes it in himself, the incarnate word. In him. We find the hope of resurrection and, the, and, and life. Why? Because he is that resurrection and life. Jesus says, these promises that God has made, I am the one who fulfills those promises. I am the hope for resurrection and life because I am that resurrection and life. He, what he's doing is he's calling for Martha and others now who read these scriptures to move beyond abstract faith in the concept that, oh yes, I know there will be a resurrection, and instead make a personal choice to play faith, place faith in him, the source of that resurrection and life. It's not just, oh yeah, there is a resurrection. A resurrection. No, he is standing before you. I am he, the resurrection and the life. Jesus holds power over life and death because he is life itself. There is no enemy that can stand against him. And not even time itself can thwart the power of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, two things are true. Number one, those who believe in him will live even though they die. This is the first promise of resurrection. That on the last day, those who know Jesus as Savior will be raised. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you pass away on this earth, there is a coming bodily resurrection from the dead. And he, Jesus, is the one who empowers this event. And secondly, Jesus promises here and reinforces that those who believe in him will never die. And what he's talking about here is he's talking about spiritual death. Now here on earth, death may claim our physical bodies for a time. And as we go through life, we feel how our bodies wear out over time, right? I see some of you come in week after week and we talk about what new aches or pains came around this week, right? And we talk about how we don't feel the way we used to. And then we we go to funerals and we see people we know who aren't alive anymore physically. But one who knows Jesus Christ, though they may physically die, yet they still live in Jesus Christ. Because our spiritual selves can never be claimed as long as we belong to Jesus. The one who lives and places faith in Jesus gains in him eternal life. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, closing your eyes in death here means opening them in eternity in the, in the presence of God. That's true hope. That's 
a glorious promise. My friend, that is greater life than you and I can ever know here. And furthermore, on this earth, Jesus gives to those who believe in him spiritual life. The Bible is very clear that you and I, because we are sinners, are born dead in our trespasses and sins. But Jesus Christ makes us alive spiritually. He gives us the ability to live in communion with him, living for his glory in his power. And this is exactly what John is driving at in his gospel. Life in Jesus, the Son of God. I am the resurrection and the life. There's life in Jesus, the Son of God. There it is again. He gives life to the lifeless. He gives hope to the hopeless. He gives grace to the weary, sinful hearts that turn to him. And what Jesus does here is he calls for Martha's personal faith in himself. Not, I know he'll rise again, but do you believe what I'm saying to you, that I am the one who gives resurrection and life? He calls her beyond the words that she knows from the scriptures to see the fulfillment of these things standing before her. And so he says at the end of verse 26, do you believe this? And we see in verse 27, Martha's confession. She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. But Jesus has called Martha to the only source of resurrection power and eternal life, that is himself. And in love, he has shown her who he is. And he has done this, by the way, in, one, in the midst of one of, if not the greatest tragedies in her earthly life. God often uses the difficult times of our lives to grow us into greater faith in himself. He knows what he must strip away in order to make us more dependent on him. And here, we see an incredible confession of faith from Martha. And she emphatically highlights what she believes about Jesus. She says here, she confesses that he is first the Christ, that is, the Messiah, the one who is promised to come by God. She believes that he is, then she says, the Son of God, just as the Old Testament predicted, and as he has claimed on numerous occasions that he is the Son of God. And and let me remind you, this is not a um, wishy-washy, non-theological, we're all God's children, okay? This is the one and only Son of God, is what she's talking about. She believes that he is God incarnate, is what she's saying. And lastly, she believes he is the one who comes into the world. That is, she believes he is the deliverer. She believes that Jesus is who he says he is. And she may not completely believe or understand his power of resurrection in this immediate instance, but she has incredible faith in Jesus nonetheless. And I think this is just an incredible passage because as we have gone through almost 11 chapters of the book of John, I don't know about you, but I have, I have found that the book of John is just full of rejection, right? It's a book that constantly confronts people with their sin and with their need to place belief in Jesus Christ and them constantly saying, no, I don't want to do that. Or you get to the end of chapter 10 and it's very violently opposed as they pick up stones and they want to stone Jesus for what he has said. And it's just refreshing to read here 
in John chapter 11 that Martha shows that she believes in him. She does not disobey Jesus because, by the way, to reject Jesus Christ is to disobey God. But instead, she places faith in Jesus Christ to the glory of God. Faith in Jesus is always rewarded. The reward of eternal life is given to the one who confesses Jesus as Lord. The one who recognizes the fact that Jesus is Lord and trusts in him is rewarded with life from, who, from he who is the resurrection and the life. Believers are rewarded for their faith with continued growth in Jesus day by day. Faith brings eternal change and temporal growth. And after this incredible interaction, we see now another who will come and speak with Jesus. As we close with this last point today, we see Jesus' compassion in verses 28 through 37. In verses 28 through 32, now we are met with Mary's grief. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came and where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down on his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So Martha, having made this grand confession of faith, now leaves the scene. She has another person she wishes to call to see Jesus, and that's her sister, Mary. Now, perhaps from what she says here, it was even at the request of Jesus, is not recorded, to go and retrieve Mary. Like Martha, Mary has felt the love and compassion of Jesus in her life in the past. She has sat at his feet, learning from him. And so Martha here attempts to move Mary quietly to the Lord. With a home full of mourners, she wishes to give Mary and Jesus the same moment of privacy that she and Jesus have just shared. She tells Mary that the teacher has come and wishes to see her. By the way, that that word, the teacher, that's a very common way for a disciple of Jesus to refer to him in those days, right? A follower of Jesus to say the teacher has come. But I think it is important to note that it was, it was unusual because Jewish rabbis did not generally instruct women in the days of Jesus. And once again, we see Jesus as God transcends the bounds of common practice. But the attempt at a quiet exit quickly vanishes because Mary does not, we read there, she doesn't get up and, and quietly excuse herself out of the room She instead bolts out of the house to get to Jesus. She's going to find him in that same place outside the town where he spoke with Martha. But this sudden movement draws the attention of those who have come to console and mourn with the family. They they see her running out. And so they presume that she's going to go to the tomb to weep for Lazarus. And so they want to continue their duties to their family. Where are they supposed to go? Well, they're supposed to go with her, right? To help console her. So they all troop out of the house. They follow her to continue their duties. And on a human level, you and I see this as 
as unideal, right? We feel the need of Jesus and Mary to share this moment that he may give her the same hope that he has just given to Martha. But yet again, the sovereignty of God is seen in this because the miracle that Jesus will soon perform will now lack no small number of witnesses because of these events. And I could just imagine all of these people, because again, there's a good chance that there's some religious hierarchy mixed into this group as they're, okay, we're going to the tomb, and they come out and they see Jesus, right? Imagine the surprise on their faces, especially if they know some of the events that have happened over the last little bit. And when she arrives, she falls down at his feet, and from her lips we hear a very familiar refrain. Do those words sound familiar that she said? She expresses the same desire Martha had shared that Jesus' presence would have been earlier. Because if he were there, Lazarus would not have died. You, you can almost see, and again, this is, this is just looking back before this text here, you can almost see Mary and Martha sitting in the home consoling each other, saying over, if Jesus had been here, if Jesus had been here, right? Because that's what comes out of their mouths. But yet, once again, this is not a rebuke or bitterness. She's overcome with emotion, and she still, in this moment, professes her faith in Jesus' power. Because the fact that she believes things would have been different with his presence proves that she believes what she believes about him in her heart, that he has the power as God to do these things. And now we see the full scene of people and emotion, and we witness the emotions of Jesus in this moment as we close the, the passage here in verses 33 through 37, we see Jesus' own emotion. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Pastor John Phillips, in his commentary on the book of John, observes this. Nowhere in the Bible is the deity of Christ more in evidence than in this story. Nowhere is his humanity more in evidence. Jesus' omniscience and omnipotence are, are both on full display in this account in John chapter 11. At the same time, we see the very real experiences that Jesus has as a human being. He surveys the scene and he sees the mourning taking place. The scripture here tells us that he saw Mary and others, the others who were there, weeping. And that word, by the way, when it talks about weeping, speaks of lamenting aloud, expressing uncontrollable, audible grief. It's like a wailing. Now this was not only common, but what was expected. The Jewish customs of this day required that even the poorest family at times of mourning was to hire at least two flute players and a professional wailing woman during times of mourning. And a prominent family like Mary and Martha's they, they probably would have had more professional mourners in addition to those who were connected with, with the family. I just want you to get the idea here. This is a very sad, very loud scene that we're talking about here, okay? This is not go into the local funeral home and hear people talking quietly. This is, this is people weeping loudly. And in verse 33, we are told that Jesus groaned 
in the spirit. Now, this is a very hard phrase to translate into English. Because literally, the word behind this phrase means to snort like an angry horse. Okay? Just to kind of give you the idea of what we're trying to, 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 to communicate. It, it communicates and pictures inner tor- turmoil and even anger. And so then the question becomes, well, what is Jesus angry about? Right? With what or with whom? Well, some have suggested he is angry with sin and its consequences. For because of sin's entrance into the world, Lazarus has suffered death, even though Jesus and we know that will not have the final victory in this account. Yet that doesn't negate the hardship and the struggle it brought into the lives of those who are affected in this situation. And in the same sense of that statement then, Sin should anger us today. You and I, if, especially if we know the Lord, should hate what sin does to our world. We should hate the consequences that it has brought. Death, by the way, is God's answer to sin. What did God say to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? The day that you eat of it, you will surely die. God's answer to sin was death. That's the consequence. But even in that... Resurrection is God's answer to death in Jesus Christ. Others have suggested that Jesus is angry with the scene that he sees before him. Here are people mourning and wailing as those who have no hope. All the while, the hope of eternal life is standing right in front of them. And this may very well be part of what agitated the Lord's soul, because he longed for his people's trust and belief in himself. And he had strong feelings here of troubledness in his inner being, and he is deeply moved, and now he wishes to know where Lazarus is buried. And it's interesting here, by the way, that the people refer to him as Lord, come and see. This this means, by the way, it's not a huge point, but a little bit of something to note, that the, the crowd is not entirely hostile. Okay, because it's a very respectful way to refer to him. Jesus, now observing the tomb where his friend lies, expresses full humanity. He weeps for his friend's death and the consequences of sin. This passage shows us that Jesus himself felt grief and sorrow just as we do as human beings. But also, we should note here, this is not a wailing or a loud cry. The word here when it describes Jesus' weeping is quite different. It's only used once right here in the entire New Testament. And it it refers to a silent bursting into tears. Jesus faced in his life all the struggles and hardships that you and I face. He stared down temptation to its greatest and darkest form. He experienced deep and sorrowful loss. It is incredible to see Jesus' sorrow here as he is preparing even now to do something that takes the suffering of this family away. Jesus knows the frailties that you and I face in our lives. And that is an important point to make. But I want to follow it up with a point that is equally important. We make no mistake that Jesus was 100% man, but he is also God. We must properly balance our view of Jesus 
My friend, do not buy into a wishy-washy, watered-down, he-gets-us idea that overemphasizes Jesus' humanity, okay? Maybe you've seen some of the things that I just referenced, okay? We cannot say this enough. Jesus was 100% man, but we cannot say this enough. He is at the same time 100% God. He understands fully who we are because he experienced it, but also because he created us. At the same time, he is the only one who can give us comfort and peace, not because of what he experienced, but because of who he is. He is our hope. I'm sorry, I just don't buy this whole Jesus understands you because he was a person and he can help you because he knows you and he gets you. Jesus can help you because he is God. Listen, I'm a person just like you and I've been through all things you've been through in your life or most of them, but I'm just a person. At the end of the day, you don't need me, you need God. At the end of the day, I don't need a Jesus who's just like me. I need a Jesus who isn't like me. Okay, I'm going to get off of that, all right? But I get real consternated about that stuff. I get all worked up about it because Jesus isn't just a person. He is God. And as such, he offers us hope as the resurrection and the life. He calls us to believe in him to the glory of God. And those who were standing around Jesus that day saw his humanity on full display. No one looked at Jesus and thought, well, he's, not, he's some alien or he's not a person. They, they understood that he was a person, but they also at the same time then missed the biggest thing, that he is God. They see what is going on and they are touched by his personal love for Lazarus, his friend. You know, they say, see how he loved him. But at the same time, then look what people say in verse 37, they also wonder aloud at the seeming lack of power. Jesus, a few months before, had just healed a man who was born blind. Could he not have kept Lazarus from dying? And folks, there it is. That is the fullest expression of the agnostic, unbelieving heart. So often it is asked, well, if God is so powerful and God is so loving, why does he not keep me or us or this person or that family from suffering? And that is where we must once again see the deity of Jesus and our woeful inability to understand all of these things. God does not answer to you and me. We don't hold counsel on what God does. He does what is right and just and is perfect and holy will. We are called to trust and follow. But so many refuse. We want to control our lives, and we want to dictate the terms of our lives to God, but you and I don't get to dictate the terms of our lives to God. The wisest, we must make wise decisions, yes, by the application of God's word, and the wisest of these decisions is to hear his call and trust in Jesus as Savior. And then we are called to continue to live in him and for him and through him to the glory of God as a disciple. And all the while, we know at the same time, we have a great high priest who is touched by our infirmities, but with the power to do all things in his time in his perfect way. 
And so often it's expressed like this. And, and I just, I heard some thoughts on this this week and it just, it stirred my heart and my soul. You, you, you so often hear people say, hey, what you need to do is you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And we think that's a great statement, but understand this. You don't make Jesus Lord of anything. You acknowledge that fact. Jesus is not sitting somewhere waiting for you to crown him. Oh, thank you, you've made me Lord. He is Lord, whether you like it or not. What God requires of us is to acknowledge that and to place ourselves under him where we belong, right? You will either bow here and in eternity, or you will bow in eternity alone. That's the choice we make with our hearts. Either, either we recognize that Jesus is Lord here and now. We make him, there's that phrase, make him the Lord of lives. We submit ourselves to him as the Lord of our lives. And we bow here, and then we continue to bow in eternity. Or you don't acknowledge Jesus, and you live your life in rebellion and unbelief to God. And when you reach eternity, you will bow. But my friend, it will be too late. You will suffer eternity separated from God in hell because of your son. And there will be no doubt in your mind at that point, Jesus is Lord. Jesus knows you personally. He knows your struggles. He's touched by your grief. And he is powerful to save and to work the perfect will of God in your life no matter what. You must trust him. You can trust him. And it is always worth it. He is the resurrection and the life now and forever. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, my hope for eternity and spiritual life in the present are tied directly to him. Jesus walked into a dark situation and brought the light of himself. He offered to those who mourned a hope beyond words. He declared a message of life never heard before that rings through the pages of history today, to us today. He is the hope of salvation. He has the words of life. He is the great I am. So the question is, will you trust him? Will you recognize his lordship? Will you follow him today? If you do not know Jesus as your personal Savior, he calls you to himself today. And if you do, then here's what you know from this passage today. You know true hope. I'm going to make a statement that you're going to sit there and go, duh, okay? Life is full of disappointment. Thank you, okay? It's full of grief, trials, and sorrow. And it is this way because we live in a broken, sin-cursed world. But in Jesus, you know the answer to sin. You know the glorious truth of the gospel. You are called to continue to trust him and look to him. Even in the darkest moments, you can find joy in him. And whatever you're facing and going through in life, sickness and death, failed relationships, hardships and sufferings, brokenness and limitations of this world, turn to Jesus. Find in him glorious comfort and abiding peace. You can live 
the most hopeful of lives if you will turn your eyes upon him. This is not some God wants you to be happy shallowness, okay? It is truth that is found only in the deepness of true fellowship with him and his word and communion with him in prayer. That's the only way you find this. Love him, serve him, follow him, rest in him. Father, we thank you for the word of God and his power to change our lives. We thank you for the revelation of who Jesus is. Thank you that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Thank you that in him and him alone there is power to be saved from sin. There is hope to be raised again. There is comfort and peace of an eternal relationship with you. Lord, today, we ask that you would do your work in our hearts. It is hard to imagine that everyone who hears these things today has truly settled this in their own hearts. And I pray today you would show them once again who you are. You would remind them you are the great I am. You have made them in your image. You have loved them with an everlasting love. You have given Jesus Christ in exchange for them. I pray that you and your grace and mercy would call them to yourself. You would help them to have the courage to set aside their pride, whatever it may be, and they would bow the knee before you today and know you as Savior. Lord, I pray for Christians who hear these things, that you would fill us again with wonder, amazement at who you are. Help us to see in Jesus we have a great high priest who, who feels the things that we feel, but we have a great high priest who isn't just a person. He is the Lord of all who reigns supreme. Help us to acknowledge that, not just in our, with our lips, but with our lives, that we would submit the way we live to you. That we would grow and change in the grace of God. We ask as we conclude our service today that you would receive the honor and the glory and the praise. You would bring us back tonight to worship you. Your name we pray. Amen.